Welcome to the Dig In Travel Podcast, where travel and other digital professionals level up their marketing skills by listening to the top industry experts. And now, here's your host, Istok Franco, founder of DigInTravel.com, your number one resource for travel, digital, e-commerce, and marketing. This is Istok, and you're listening to episode 29 of the Dig In Travel Podcast. In our previous podcast, I talked about how we are going to use this podcast platform to promote the work of the airline digital professionals with our Airline Digital Talks podcast series. Most of the feedback I get from you is that you like to hear what other airlines are doing and how are your peers tackling the same problems you face at your work. This is why we decided to expand our, our Airline Digital Talks series and add Airline Data Talks. Why Data Talks? Well, I've always been interested in digital analytics and how to use data to understand your customers, your users, so you can improve your airline websites and increase conversions. We also have a new podcast sponsor, Glassbox, and they do some very cool stuff to provide you these insights. Check out glassbox.com to see their platform in action. But the main reason for the airline data talk series is that when I look at our airline digital job board, where we post open job opportunities, data roles are among the ones that are in demand the most. Roles like data architect, data engineer, data scientist, data analyst, sounded futuristic five or 10 years ago. But now we see them regularly on our job board. How are airlines putting all these new data roles to work has intrigued me for a while. What are the use cases they work on? Why and even more, how do you build an internal airline data team from scratch? How is then this data team organized? Well, our today's guest, Ivan Karlovic, Director of Data Analytics and Master Data at Norwegian, is doing all these things and tackling these problems right now. Ivan shared tons of interesting insights and his experience from building a new data team in Norwegian. So I hope you'll find these insights relevant and I hope you'll enjoy the talk with you. Hi, Ivan, and welcome to the Digging Trail podcast. Hello, Istok, and thanks for having me. Uh, welcome to our show, because this is our airline digital, or in your case, airline data talk series. Maybe before we start, Ivan, please tell our audience a little bit about yourself, what you do at uh, Norwegian. Yeah, sure. So since last autumn, I'm heading up a sort of newly founded department called Data Analytics and Master Data in Norwegian. I would say sort of, you know, all my professional life, I've been always working on applied analytics um, and, you know, data data mining in the old days, you know, call it what you want, data science these days. So prior to joining Norwegian, uh, actually, most of my professional career is tied to kind of telco, 12 years in a Norwegian operator um, that was actually present in my uh, sort of home country where I'm from. I'm actually from Serbia. Okay. Um, from the neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 500 kilometers kind of east from you, I guess. Yes, yes. So yeah, again, you know, all my life, analytics, applied analytics, very often in commercial setting. And now I would say kind of since joining Norwegian, working more cross-domain. So we're not only looking at, you know, marketing-related opportunities, but actually cross-domain from like HR to like engine logs type of thing. So so really uh, many exciting developments. Interesting background, uh, a lot of data work and 
we'll come to the commercial part uh, later on to the marketing part because this is what the show mostly focuses on but what i wanted to talk to you is because what's interesting to me is i see the new or how, however you want to call it norwegian re relaunch and one of the things uh, i see you guys uh, are focusing on is building the data team so building internal data capabilities so to start, why would one build uh, an airline data team when you start, let's say, with the airline operations? Why is data so important? Well, I, will, I would guess kind of most of your listeners kind of will already kind of have that buy-in, that understanding that, yeah. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, you kind of, yeah, okay. Then I can, you know, repeat it once again <laughs> for everyone. Yeah, I mean, data allows you to do a lot of things. Uh, I mean, I've seen, you know, again, kind of before joining Norwegian, I was kind of a customer of Norwegian. And you can see really how much really also knowing the domain, aviation, the whole finance thing, you know, kind of kind of pulling those type of, you know, huge orders and how that impact competitors, etc. I mean, you can get very far and very advanced, I would say, without even using kind of, you know, kind of data as your central core sort of source of those things. Uh, data can definitely come on top. And as we've seen over the past few years, it's really, I think we've really mostly moved past the discussion, should we use data or is analytics worth it? But you actually move into kind of, you know, just executing on it. And I would say even before I joined Norwegian, and that was kind of at probably one of the worst times, that was like 1st of April 2020, <laughs> 17 days after the Norwegian lockdown. Um, even then, I would say um, the executive leadership had a very clear idea. We know this is important for our future, even though kind of now are very difficult days, let's not ignore it that, you know what, we want to be running out of the gates when COVID is kind of, you know, um, as it's being now, I would say being suppressed to, to kind of mm -hmm. some reasonable levels. So even then they had the knowledge and I would say the vision that doing analytics, even at your kind of most difficult times, is still something that's going to return kind of great value for you you know, in 2021, 2022. So uh, it was really great to see that, you know, that we were able, of course, at lower scale, et cetera, still kind of progress towards that vision to have the most advanced analytical platforms that we have great people, mm -hmm. you know, in our teams to be able to solve these use cases. So I would say COVID, of course, impacted, I mean, I mean, huge things in the industry, but I would say real original leadership always had that kind of vision you know, it's worthwhile to kind of invest in this area. You convinced me about not trying to convince people <laughs> that data and analytics is important. And what you said, yeah, we are past that stage. So now the, the stage or what's important is the execution. Yeah. Mm. And uh, the interesting part that I see about your execution is that you're building this, especially people capabilities in-house. So building yeah. internal data team. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is the concept behind it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen kind of both sides of that approach. So I've seen situations where, you know, consultants are brought in, but, you know, very high skilled, et cetera. Hopefully, at least with some domain knowledge, in some cases, it was like, you know, fantastic coding skills, but zero domain knowledge, et cetera. Then you have to kind of onboard them to your domain addition. But I've seen, you know, kind of uh, situations where I came to an organization and then the consultants have just left prior to that. 
nobody really took you know ownership of you know what they deliver so they might have even delivered something good but kind of it was lost in this transitional phase there was no clear documentation and you know typically in times before you know Jiran confluence etc it was kind of even more you know maybe you got a semi decent word document to kind of look at something but possibly not able to ask anyone who who kind of developed it really again early on talking to many of my you know peers and leaders it was always the ambition to build a, I would say, a, a very strong in-house team because we do not expect to be able to solve everything on our own, but still to have the competence, I would say, to tackle, you know, the 80% of the use cases that deliver probably 90% of the expected value, right? And hopefully after, you know, kind of low-hanging fruits and some of the obvious things we kind of, you know, reach, when you reach some certain level of, I don't know, computer vision type of thing, you know, augmented reality type of use cases, sure, right? It, it probably would be more efficient to bring in somebody from the side who has that type of technical competence for that, you know, specific use case alone. And then you kind of take it from there. But I still believe because of ownership, because of basically you have enough to do to have, you know, an, like an active team working on it not 24-7, but basically right mm-hmm. from day to day, it's really worthwhile to kind of keep that team and kind of nurture that data culture. And what kind of roles are you insourcing? Let's say, what kind of kind of profiles and roles are you looking? So lately, as we've kind of moving towards a kind of cloud-based analytical platform, I can say we've kind of chosen AWS this spring. Um, I wanted to make sure we can do an end-to-end, you know, pipeline. So, of course, we'll still have kind of great colleagues from IT doing, you know, maybe some system integration, et cetera, bring the data to the platform in the best possible way. But once it's on the platform, I want to have an end-to-end capable team. So uh, we went out to get data engineers, uh, of course, data scientists, and, you know, a little bit playing around the concept of something in between like an MLOps operations oriented type of role. Also somebody with a kind of a machine learning engineering, potentially also to tackle some of the, I would say, more simple computer vision type of use cases. So again, you know, to be able to, you know, prep the data, crunch it, you know, in the analytical form, you know, test it, verify, deploy it, monitor it. Etc. So that we can actually, you know, take charge of those things. So you said you you moved to cloud uh, to have this end-to-end capabilities, be agile, fast, independent of IT, so you could do things fast. What are then when you have these capabilities? What kind of use cases are you looking at, or is and what is the process with use cases? Is the business coming to you? Okay, one, we want to have insights mm-hmm. there, or are you guys who are suggesting? Let's try to look at this. Here is where we see value. Yeah, I, I think it has to be both. So, therefore, when I was kind of recruiting or kind of um, data scientists, I always wanted to see also this kind of business acumen, uh, also understanding for the business because sort of, you know, sometimes I come across kind of great candidates who are kind of great at, you know, some technical skills, but actually had, I would say, less interest or, or maybe even kind of understanding of, you know, how it could be actually commercially applied. So uh, I would say, you know, kind of, I think we're lucky that many of the, in many of the domains, people have a very clear vision of what's their kind of a biggest challenge. And they come to us and, you know, ask for kind of certain help. It could be a simple thing from, hey, please, you know, could you, you know, collect a simple report for me occasionally into, you know, something more advanced as a, you know, interactive dashboard, near real time type of data into, okay, can you actually help me with doing, you know, predictions, alarms, et cetera. But of course, I mean, sometimes what we do is kind of, of course, we went to all the 
different business representatives and we listen to their problems, right? Because what can happen is that they don't have, I would say, the full understanding of what you know, machine learning can do for them, what AI services can do for them. So sometimes we actually have to recognize, we as sort of sitting on, you know, analytics capabilities have to recognize what could be a potential opportunity. And then we tell them, all right, you know what, kind of based on kind of this problem you're describing or this setting, you know, you could actually, you know, not only just have a report, but, you know, we could actually do something on top, something kind of intelligent, smart, forecasting alarms, we can automate your processes, we can integrate it to your, you know, some kind of end devices. So then I like to kind of challenge them to think beyond that. Always, of course, kind of, you know, do not focus on technology. It's kind of, you know, our job is kind of verify, is it doable? Are there some challenges? Do you have the right data? You know, you kind of have the dream, you have your perfect solution, and then we sort of back engineer from there we actually kind of verify what we can deliver. So uh, I, I think it goes hand in hand to be kind of in this dual mode, mm-hmm. also as a business advisor type of role, but also, of course, to be a careful listener and make sure we, you know, that we can support the domain experts in a good way. One of the roles I think I saw you were looking at recently was data analytics manager for revenue management. In terms of organization, so you have, uh, let's say, data analytics manager sitting in different departments, so it's like more dispersed organization or it's centralized, so these people are part of the data team and then talking to the business. So it's a good question, and, and we actually spend some time on kind of reflecting kind of how should kind of, you know, the role of my team, and the role you described is actually with revenue management, which, which of course, it's kind of... Uh, in its own area, we were discussing, you know, should it be some type of, you know, central of excellence, central function? Should it be some, you know, sort of hybrid, etc.? So for now, I think when we kind of assessed the maturity levels of different parts of the organization and the kind of the active need, right? So some areas like pricing, revenue, management, etc., do need, again, I would say, you know, you need a full-time employees. There's enough complexity. There's enough work to actually be there, right? On the other hand, you have other bits and pieces of organization might just occasionally need somebody, right? On the other hand, they might just be at sort of like uh, comfortable with Excel type of level, right? So what we quickly realized that there's no, you know, one size fits all, I think. And then we kind of recognize we're going to go into sort of a hybrid mode that my team, because it is working across domains, is both serving as a, I would say, kind of center of excellence best practice area, uh, also coming in with extra capacity where it's kind of needed, but also making sure that kind of those areas which are mature enough, and there we talk about like revenue management, you know, payment systems, et cetera, where they have analytically skilled people um, that we actually work on enablement. So there we have kind of fantastic people, uh, great analytical skills, already kind of very advanced technical backgrounds. There we want to make sure that they can actually work, you know, efficiently. They have all the data they need. So there we work more towards enablement. Parts of our organization, we work more with like education for them to understand how we can help them. And then when it comes, you know, like just just purely like a peak demand in, in some of the aspects like like ramp up or whatever, where you have like these type of specific mm-hmm. activities growing at enormous scales, you actually bring in just capacity. And what I always said, like people in my team need to be exposed to all of these different domains. I don't want a, you know, analytical person specializing mm-hmm. in only one domain because tomorrow they can't come in and, you know, help someone else, right? So we're going to kind of stretch them across all domains so they can actually, you know, help with peak demand. Interesting stuff, really. 
I have so many questions, so, so much stuff. But one thing, going back to what you said initially, that during COVID, although at a lower scale, you still wanted to make sure that these analytics initiatives are going on and you're building on this maturity that you're now explaining. What I've seen with COVID was that also the paradigm shift happened, you know, especially if you say commercial planning, revenue management planning, where we used to have these long planning cycles, seasonal. So it was big changes to schedule, uh, I don't know, twice a year. Uh, and now I think I also heard airline people talking about uh, how these cycles accelerated to monthly, sometimes even weekly. And for this, to do this, to be agile, to reflect, I think data and external data is extremely important. How, how did you see this? Did you see this shift of trying to be able to get external data about demand, patterns, process it fast and put it uh, in an agile way, even if it's not really structured uh, or uh, let's say 100% perfect, but at least actionable? Uh, how did you see this shift? Yeah. Well, I have to admit, you know, again, we have, you know, great people working specifically with like, you know, network optimization, scheduling, etc. I know some details of it, you know, we, we haven't actually kind of still kind of gone into very deep on kind of how my team can specifically help. Um, I would expect every business specifically with kind of need, these needs for changes, right? So I would say kind of there's two things. One is where you can kind of improve the agility of some processes, which are maybe related to kind of technology. Secondly is, right, are you actually making the underlying, I would say, physical world flexible enough, right? Which could be actually achieved with, you know, new uh, contracts and with your partners, right? So it's not everything in data, you know, we could kind of run simulation cycles, right? Kind of rerun them every few hours, you know, every few days. But if the underlying setting doesn't allow you to actually implement your kind of a new optimized scenario, then it kind of goes away. So I think those two things go kind of hand in hand. I, I haven't seen sort of, you know, I, I think this physical setting has actually changed dramatically because it allowed the airlines to negotiate a more flexible, I would say, models for airline operations in, in the post-COVID world. And then this is actually more goes hand in hand with these, I would say, more efficient or more often rerun optimizations. But yeah, again, I haven't seen this reach a, you know, dramatically improved scale. I think Customers also, you know, admire a set of predictability, also in the schedules, etc. So uh, there's certainly a balance to strike, and I'm nowhere near an expert in, you know, in in that type of area. But I see, yes, elements of agility built in, and then it's a question, sort of, can you actually put it together into some sort of sweet spot where you can be kind of flexible enough and not rely on six-month cycles, but also to be able to execute on them. One topic that I wanted to touch upon. You go back, you said, prior to being ahead or let's say have a broader data and analytics responsibility, you worked on customer insights. Also, you mentioned your prior uh, roles in telco or on the commercial marketing uh, insight side. What were some of the biggest learnings there? So uh, when it comes to using data for customer insights, because everybody's talking in marketing, in e-commerce, you have to know your customers, you have to get the insights, uh, but I still that often we still struggle here. I don't think there's kind of probably like a silver bullet there. I think it's really a lot of, you know, hard work, a lot of grid work. I think usually what can happen that periodically you do, you know, stumble upon in certain cycles of kind of new insight. It could be, you know, a new thing about kind of some previous 
pattern that you were observing, or it could be, hey, this is the first time we're looking into this area and it's actually, you know, springing up something interesting. I think what's important when some of those ideas pop up and those insights are, I say, never a kind of an end result. Those are actually kind of the starting triggers to, you know, let's look into it. You know, do we want to actually change it? Do we want to actually boost that type of behavior? Do we want to encourage it? How do we then put it in some type of experimentation framework? Do we have actually sort of the, you know, this kind of a standard, you know, A-B testing? Uh, are we actually, you know, pushing it to the right channels, etc.? So usually I see this as a sort of precursor that, you know, periodically just, I think, resets some marketing, I would say, truths out there because I would expect, you know, kind of a lot of the marketing people historically, without relying on data, had to build what I call like a data in their head, right? It's call it business intuition, call it business experience. Typically, those models in people's heads of how the market will react to something are typically not bad, right? I mean, we're not talking about pulling somebody from the street randomly and asking them to, you know, uh, see if will they accept this, you know, sort of product offering. So you do have, I think, you know, kind of a certain level of sophistication in, in this kind of marketing approach, kind of on a human mm-hmm. um, sort of without data approach on, on based on better than sort of empiric evidence. But afterwards, when you start to add more data into it, when you run those kind of experiments, you can really actually say, hey, you know what, if we do it like this, right? If you do use this combination of channels, if you use this type of communication, we can, you know, improve it by this much. So again, I see it, it has, you know, all of it has to be really wound together. You have to have these sort of periodic, you know, insights that kind of challenge your previous historic views to actually go somewhere new. Um, But afterwards, you have to do the learnings. You have to see, you know, okay, somebody in another market tried out something and they saw 20% increase in whatever KPI, right? You need to verify, you know, maybe that's worse or better for your market. You need to understand why is that happening, right? Again, you have to be like consistently working on it. Otherwise, you know, you can easily just kind of stop and then it's kind of uh, lands in, you know, in some dark corner of the organization where nobody takes a look. And, and that, on the other hand, can easily, in my experience, demotivate a lot of data people. So a lot of the data people I've seen, you know, like working hard, you're dealing with messy data, you're, you're, you're talking to people who are uncertain what are they serving to you, you work, you know, for weeks sometimes, build a great presentation, and then it stops, right? There's actually nothing kind of worse to kind of you can do to kind of demotivate your data people. De- definitely, I think embedding data people into these like agile loops, uh, you mentioned experimentation to form hypotheses, to validate them, to test them, and to do this data-driven approach, I think it's, uh, it's, the, right, uh, it's the right approach. Uh, you were talking about the knowledge that is there, like in the heads, in the industry knowledge. Uh, and I agree, I mean, a lot of it is experience, knowing the field, working in, like you said, in a certain domain. Uh, but I think it's also, then it's a thin line between this and the biases, you know? So sometimes we have, because we have so much industry knowledge, we also have biases. And what I've seen as a next step, okay, we will test something, some of my ideas, but we will use data to validate these biases, not to actually test them. And here I see sometimes conflicts between, let's say, data-driven approach and then when business has challenges accepting the data-driven approach, because as long as it's confirming the biases, it's okay. <laughs> but <laughs> when we when 
it's a, it's a step to becoming really open, really open-minded and accepting. Look, I can be wrong. We need this is why we need to test and not let's confirm my hypothesis. Yeah, and and, and that's definitely sort of one of the dangers there uh, that kind of you get shut down if if you know if if it doesn't go along kind of where the management wants to take it. I I think what's kind of an extra layer of underlying risk that maybe a lot of people might not be sort of aware of is that. Because kind of maybe these biases exist, they have been actually translated and built in the data, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of you again have to know the domain and you have to question, is the data actually biased? And in most of cases, I would say more often than not, because of some, you know, how actually it was, you know, either collected or logged, right? Let's say in, in telco world, like still, you know, you have digital channels, but like I was working mostly on enterprise kind of a, a side where you still had a lot of customer care contacts, uh, et cetera, uh, actual agents that needed to be, I would say, motivated to log the right details and not just click the first thing that's kind of sprung so that they're faster. All of those things can actually build in a lot of bias into the data, which again, if you don't question it, you can come up with a like totally wrong answer there. So, uh, yeah, uh, those are kind of, a, you know, the you can never underestimate how humans can, I would say, really, you know, blur the picture. That was a great point. I mean, bias is also embedded in data. I mean, I, I didn't think of it of this way, but it's it's true. It's true because we, if we start our measurement frameworks, our let's analytical frameworks with this in mind, we will measure to prove this then uh, sometimes we are missing the big picture. Now, in, in this case, I usually like to say, like, uh, why I prefer, you know, I love humans doing operations, not that I want to, you know, take away jobs, <laughs> automate, RPA, whatever. But really, when it comes to digital channels, this is the one thing I really prefer, is that you remove some of that bias, right? You remove on, you know, like, if we place a message on digital channel in front of a customer, we know that control setting. On the other hand, I can listen into a few customer care people's phones and then, you know, you know, are they enthusiastic about it? Are they having a tough day? Did they have a previous frustrated customer yelling at them? I mean, those are all human things that I fully, you know, understand and respect, but can dramatically, I would say, impact, you know, how you deliver the next message, right? So again, that's why I kind of, at least for the interpretation part, I really love working with digital channels. I have to say, like in Norwegian, you know, it's really I would say that the vast majority of interactions is through digital channels, and then definitely that helps with you know assessing some of these kind of you know communication efficiencies and and, com and like campaign responses and such. The last part of this conversation, I would like to touch maybe where we ended with organization. You said you have different areas and different maturity level with data with things as such. The the model maybe not maybe but for sure. It's based on my recent, uh, let's say, occupation. And the thing that I'm thinking about in my mind is, you know, this how data-driven and what kind of skills, even tool sets, should we have as digital marketing in our tool bag? For example, I always treated myself as, a, let's say, advanced data users, started uh, playing around a little bit with R, uh, trying to do my own data crunching. And I saw the elements of agility, like we were talking before. So... I don't know, in two months, I could learn myself to parse a website, to pull some data from and build my own dashboard to see if this is applicable or not. And what I'm philosophically questioning, you know, how far should this go? You know, should hmm. uh, should we as a digital people, digital marketing people try to pursue as much of this 
put as much of this analytic skills in our toolbed, like advanced analytics, mm-hmm. even some R or Python, or is this something that uh, should be there in the data department? And uh, because you are from the other side, I- I'm interested. Uh, <laughs> I'm interested in your view on this. No, it's uh, and I have you know like evolving views of that. I, I think again, there's no silver bullet like one size fits all. Like just to kind of give you the kind of when I joined my first telco job, we had an amazing BI team, fantastic control of knowing exactly what kind of data you can get. You know definitions mm-hmm. of it. You know almost perfect pitch data quality. Then in my data science type of role, I could really only focus on you know. You know, just crunching it, just focus on the creative bit, right? Give me the next problem. We could actually build like, you know, I'm really not exaggerating, like like seven to ten, you know, like you know, like models or, or <laughs> like kind of conclusions of, of ad hoc analysis in a single day, right? So within those eight hours, I went there and kind of delivered ten things because the data was there, updated, didn't need to really, you know, question too much about it, and just focus on creativity and efficiency. I would say, ideally, I would like to place everybody in their, I would say, core role to be mostly focused on the creative and value creation part, you know? Mm-hmm. Typically, if you would have to, on a digital marketing side, need to revert to crunching, typically that's a sign that you're struggling somewhere else, that, the you know, the kind of the pipeline before you is actually, you know, doesn't have the capacity to deliver it to you. You know, they have to kind of deliver maybe bigger projects and, and not your kind of idea. Maybe it's just not prioritized. So there's like prioritization cycles that slow yeah. down, et cetera. So I would say, again, ideally, uh, and this goes back to, again, like this central model mm-hmm. and then, you know, we're a little bit following up this data mesh type of um, architecture. So, like, how much should you do monolithic stuff, like, and everything in a single place versus, I think, what we're recognizing could be an interesting aspect. So, you do kind of, you do have these power users. You do have people comfortable with kind of like you venturing, you know, <laughs> more, I would say, you know, upstream there, right? So, there is, a, a, I would say, a good balance to be struck. Of course, if you go to out there, mm-hmm. you run into a situation of governance, you run into a situation where, you know, people could be building, I would say, maybe the same thing, but still call it slightly different and then meet in different, you know, uh, meetings and, you know, just kind mm-hmm. of lead to a lot of confusions. They're like data governance, etc. Even cost elements. I mean, I'm saying we should not be on any cloud platform calculating the same thing twice, right? Mm-hmm. But, okay, maybe in a single layer first, you have this kind of more monolithic structure, right? You, you, you bring the data once, you clean the data once, you can prepare the data once. That's probably good for 90% of your use cases. And then if you need these deviations or certain kind of, a, kind of areas need deviations from it, then they venture into this more autonomous model where they have more liberty to do so. Mm-hmm. But then it comes to then your responsible who's taking, you know, it opens up a lot of questions. And again, I think the important there is for the sort of organization to, be able to shift and adapt, right? So you start something and that might work for you know, 70% use cases. Let's see what do we need to do to fix the 30%, right? As long as you kind of, you just set one thing and hope that it works for all, it won't help. And, and none of it will be perfect. So you have to you know, learn and adapt, learn and adapt type of thing, right? No, no, I agree. And I think it comes to one of the points that you had earlier that you also part of job of, uh, let's say, your profile or let's say the data organization is to teach these advanced users about some of the let's say possibilities that are there 
some of the, let's say, the, the possibilities in AI, in uh, advanced algorithms, things like that, calculate. Because as I said, my personal experiences, okay, I venture into some things and then I start, okay, okay, how could we use this, this, and this? And then you see some early results and you get really enthusiastic. So I would be the worst power user for you, just going even, how can we do this, this, and this? But you see so many applications, for example, in e-commerce, trying to get some correlations to how things, how they influence. Can we do some advanced discovery that usually even advanced analytics does not allow you because as a human, you're not able to process I don't know, dependencies between six different uh, yeah. attributes and things like that. Yeah. So I mean, I, I am up for, I would say, the business side doing a lot of rapid prototyping, right? And I think some of it that you're describing could be there, mm -hmm. right? So I'm all up for it. Have the data to test, have the data to, to, to sort of validate. But of course, once you need to put it in production, you have to make sure it's performant, it's stable, it's monitored. And of course, we're going to kind of move it closer to the engineering stage, right? If it needs some type of operational dependence, SLAs, et cetera, it's, it's, it's something that kind of, you know, you have to bring closer, I would say, to this operation side. But again, you know, I really seen that, you know, the, the sooner you learn that something works or doesn't, and this comes from these rapid prototyping or experimenting exercises, the sooner you can kind of move to the next best thing. When it comes to data and the things that is next, what is the thing that is exciting you the most, that is most intriguing application of, uh, let's say, data and data science? Oh, for me, and, and I think I, I've seen uh, part of it also mentioned for airlines, but I think it very, very much goes beyond that. It's definitely quantum computing, right? So, you know, like, like amazingly how, you know, every few days, you know, I get like a, a fantastic articles popping in, you know, who's actually advanced and who's a, you know, that we reach the scale. So one thing is the scale. Second thing are the algorithms, which are fit for this type of architecture. And, and the thirdly, which will be the most important is cost, right? So currently kind of to do run those things at a scale, we'd want them to run are actually, actually prohibitive, right? For, for our use cases. But the thing, I mean, just kind of a few years down the road, I really expect, you know, fantastic things related to optimize anything optimization related. You mentioned schedules, et cetera, and you know, running super fast, super efficient quantum optimization things. These are, I mean, coming just a question of sort of when and then what cost and when to actually kind of jump there. So I'm really looking forward to kind of to this era. Of course, we kind of need to kind of build again a new, I would say, layer of domain uh, expertise there. We're going to have to figure out how, how could we actually reach that state. But again, uh, you know, I don't think it's a question of if, but when. It was a great chat even. Got me excited even more about data and analytics. That's right. And yeah, I hope uh, I hope you'll be successful with uh, building your internal team. And I recommend uh, all the people in my network to check Norwegian. They have a lot of data vacancies, or at least some I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and uh, I look forward to keep chatting to you. Uh, one of the things uh, personally about analytics and statistics, I was I also very deep into NBA data and basketball statistics, and then so I see that you're a fan of uh, Nikola Jokic, and <laughs> this is something uh, that I think it's uh, we have a common passion uh, interest in the in basketball, right? No, no, it is, and of course, kind of as you say, statistics is sort of part of it, and then you know there are many interesting things on you know like 
automated stats collection rather than you know people putting down notes you can actually do computer vision based you know stats yeah. collection performance all this tracking oh, yeah. data that there and i see i see this is something that i see it's a lot of times good that you look outside industry so for example tracking in sports is this computer vision automatic tracking and getting all this tracking data and recently i see applications in airports you know people do this tracking the same as you would track a person on a football or a basketball field mm. they track the airplane when it comes to yeah. lands how thick uh, and then they analyze all these things to optimize the turnaround times so i think these are very similar things um, and it's interesting that you can see similarities between even between let's say basketball and the airline business oh absolutely i mean there are kind of so many interesting opportunities and you said yes i also invite you know anybody interested in this is definitely a kind of you know, a fun place to be, you know, great people, great problems to solve. So yeah, definitely encourage everyone to apply. Thank you, Ivan. Thanks, Nachista. This podcast is brought to you by digintravel.com. Digintravel is your number one resource when it comes to airline and travel digital marketing and e-commerce. Visit digintravel.com to find the latest digital trends and white papers with in-depth airline digital benchmarks.